I'm pleased to be at Ivan Rest for the second week in a row. If you were here last week, you may remember that I'm a New Testament professor. But even though I'm a New Testament guy, I'm living dangerously for the second week in a row. We're turning to the Old Testament to, again, a part of the Bible we probably don't find ourselves in a lot. We're this, uh, last week, we were looking at the prophecy of Joel, the day of the Lord prophet, and today we turn to Hosea the broken home prophet. And both of them are so-called minor prophets. You may remember that has to do not with their importance, but their length. So I'll give you a a couple of minutes to uh, track down that part of the Bible. If you're worshiping here in person in the pew, you'll find it beginning on page 732, 732. And I'd like to look at a number of verses throughout the message uh, from throughout the book. And so rather than read one passage now, I'm going to again ask you to have your Bibles handy and we'll kind of jump around Hosea and try to get a feel, a good overview for this portion of God's Word. So in just a moment, I'm going to direct your attention to chapter 1 of Hosea, verse 2. Actions speak louder than words. That's an expression I'm pretty sure you've heard before. It refers to the fact that sometimes it's more dramatic, sometimes it's more effective not to say something, but to do something. Well, actions spoke, if not louder, at least as loud as words in the life of the prophet Hosea. Because in addition to some words that God gave him to say to God's people, God also gave him some actions, and those actions were surprising, dare I say even astonishing. We read about those surprising actions from the get-go as soon as we begin this portion of God's Word. If you look at chapter 1, verse 2, we read this, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him what? Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. God told Hosea, a holy man of God, to go out and to marry, well, it's translated a promiscuous woman because of various reasons elsewhere in the prophecy, sometimes translated a prostitute. And that's what Hosea did. I mean, that's what God told him to do, and so that's what he did. Now, I can't see mouths dropping wide open in amazement because of mask, but surely, brothers and sisters, you would find this shocking, right? You've just called a new pastor. Let's imagine we haven't done that yet, and uh, you're thinking about who might serve as your next minister, and you pick a, 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 a nice young-looking man who has just graduated from my school, Calvin Theological Seminary. He just happens to be single. And so you call him, and you sign a contract, and he comes, and it all begins pretty well. And and then one weekend, no one can find Pastor so-and-so. Where is he? And then suddenly he shows up, and word is, and it seems to be verified, that over the weekend he got married. He went to a justice of the peace, and not only did he get married, and not only is this new woman living with her, but we've discovered that she comes from, well, not a very good neighborhood here in Grand Rapids. This is a woman 
who is a prostitute. I somehow think that the brothers and sisters at Ivan Rest wouldn't be too excited about that probability or possibility. But as shocking as this action surely was in Hosea's day, it really sent a powerful message to God's people. Why? Because Hosea's marriage to the prostitute Gomer, was her name, was a model, was a representation of Israel's relationship to Yahweh the Lord. They were in a covenant relationship, an intimate relationship like that between husband and wife. And what Israel was doing was they were pursuing other gods, other deities were vying for their attention. And that's so subtle message is that's what it would be like for Yahweh God and his people. They were prostituting themselves, so to say, by going after these other pretend gods. Well, if the marriage to the prostitute Gomer wasn't shocking enough, the three children they had together, and more particularly the names of those children, were also shocking. If you have your Bibles open, we read that they did get married. We read that in verse 3. So he married, married Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. And verse 4 says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Call him Jezreel. Now, if you knew Hebrew, and obviously the original Israelites did, they would say, you would say, Jezreel, that means God scatters. God scatters. Because this was a word of warning to the Israelites that if they did not, what, get rid of these pagan gods, if they did not repent of their sinful behavior, God would Jezreel them, right? God would scatter them in exile as captives among the surrounding nations. I mentioned three kids, and this is only one so far. I've got two more to go. The next one was a girl... We read about that in verse 6, Gomar conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, Lo-Ruhamah. And again, if you knew Hebrew, or it's translated for you in this particular translation, you would say Lo-Ruhamah, that means not loved. I see a few boys and girls here this morning, which is always exciting for me, although I feel frustrated I couldn't have a children's message with them. Now just imagine moms and dads, right? Just imagine that you've named one of your sons and daughters here this morning, Lo Ruama, or not loved. I've got four kids, you know, I've got Frank and I've got Jim and I've, oh, here's, here's not loved. I mean, people are like, what? I mean, what a painful thing for any child to bear, the name not loved. Because you see, this too was sending a message to the Israelites that Again, if they didn't get rid of these pagan gods, if they did not repent of their sinful behavior, they would be lo ruamah in the eyes of God. God would no longer consider them loved. Well, child number three was another boy. We read about him in verse 8. After she had weaned lo ruamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him lo ami. 
And again, if you know Hebrew or if you just look at this translation, at least the one that we have in church this morning, you would say, Loami means not my people. Ouch. Big time ouch. Because you see, the Israelites prided themselves in being the Am. In Hebrew, the people of God. I mean, there are all kinds of peoples out there in the world, but there's only one people group. There's only one nation, right? Us, with whom God has entered into this special covenant relationship. And God comes along through the prophet Hosea and says in the name of this third child with the prostitute Gomar, if you don't get rid of these pagan gods, if you don't repent of your sinful behavior you will no longer be my people, right? You will be low on me. So I hope I'm beginning to convince you that actions spoke, if not louder, at least as loud as words in the life of the prophet Hosea. Hosea, whose marriage to the prostitute Gomar whose three children, and especially the names of these three kids, were powerful wake-up calls, powerful words of warning to the Israelites of old and to you and me today. What? To not take our covenant relationship with God for granted. Sound familiar? Joel last week? To no longer pursue these pretend gods out there vying for our attention and to repent of our behavior and what? And recommit ourselves to God and maybe even more importantly and precisely, God alone. God says, I just don't want to be number one in your life. No, I want more than that. I want to be the only one in your life. Well, so far we've been introduced to Hosea the man, a little bit about who he is, and maybe now you know why I call him the broken home prophet, right, whose home life reflected a lot of brokenness, which mirrored the brokenness at work among God's people. Just a quick word about the times in which he lived. You should know that during the prophecy of Hosea, Israel was at the tail end of 50 years of prosperity. That's right. There were good times up until this point in Israel. The real reasons were the heavyweights of that day, Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north. The heavyweights of that day had internal problems, and they were so busy trying to get their own house in order that little Israel, who was squeezed between these two superpowers, was given a bit of freedom, and in their freedom it flourished. In fact, its military borders were almost as big as under the heady days of King David and King Solomon, and life had been, and was still at this point, very, very good. But there was a problem. As Israel's military borders expanded, so expanded the number of the of the different gods that they worshipped. And as Israel's financial status and independence kind of got stronger, so increased their what? Their neglect of, well, widows, the poor, those who were in need. 
And so the time was ripe for God to kind of raise up a prophet who would warn God's people of their sinful behavior and call them to return to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Well, so far we've looked at Hosea the man, we've looked at the times in which he lived, we spend the rest of our time, and we have a little bit of time yet, and that is on his words. Because in addition to those shocking actions, God did give him some words, words that we find now recorded in our Bibles. And I'd like to quickly walk through four themes in the prophecy of Hosea with you. The first three are negative, and we're going to end on a positive note with number four. So the first three are are problems at work among God's covenant people, and we need to ask ourselves whether we might be guilty of these same dangers or behaviors. And we want to end, of course, with the good news of the gospel with theme number four. So the first three negative themes have a no in there. And the first no is no acknowledgement of God. The first problem that Hosea has to address is no acknowledgement of God by his people. To show that this is indeed a big theme in, in Hosea, just a couple of verses. Let's jump around. If you have your Bibles open, please do it with me. Start off in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. And we have kind of a legal scene here in which God is both the prosecuting attorney and the judge. And we read this. Hear the word of the Lord. 4, verse 1, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you, against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, and here comes no acknowledgement of God in the land. This is only one of many references. Go across the page, chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 4. And notice how Hosea's marriage to the prostitute Gomar becomes intimately linked with the prophecy. Because we read here in verse, chapter 5, verse 4, Their deeds, that is the, the deeds of Israel, do not permit them to return to their God, a spirit of prostitution, think of the analogy with his marriage to the prostitute Gomar, a spirit of prostitution is in their heart, they do not, here it comes, acknowledge the Lord. Chapter 6, since we're looking at it again, 6 verse 3, let us what? Let us acknowledge the Lord, let us press on to acknowledge Him. And just one more to show you that it's found elsewhere, go all the way to chapter 13, Chapter 13, a few pages, and go to verse 4. Why can't I find it? I know it's here. There it is, verse 4. 13, verse 4. And God is actually speaking directly. He says, but I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall what? You shall acknowledge No God but me, no Savior except me. And so one of the big themes or big problems that Hosea has to address among God's people is their failure to what? To acknowledge God. 
Now, I hope it's obvious that this is a question we have to ask ourselves. Do we acknowledge God? And the quick answer, the simplistic answer is, of course we do. I'm in church this morning. In fact, I even went through the snow and the bad weather to get here. I mean, doesn't that prove that I acknowledge God? I'm watching this thing online instead of doing something else. Doesn't that show that I acknowledge God? Well, those are at least good, encouraging signs. I'm happy to see people here this morning, and I'm happy to know that people are watching us online, but unfortunately, some of us are, some of us are what? Some of us are good at going through motions, certain behaviors that don't always reflect our genuine, heartfelt commitment. Some of us are actually pretty good at using words like, I believe in God and Jesus, But our words don't always agree with our deeds and with our actions. Some of us are pretty good at doing something on Sunday morning and then, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, somehow we're like different people. You know, it doesn't quite click. You know, the stuff we supposedly did and agreed to and nodded to on Sunday morning doesn't show up the rest of the week. And of course, that's not what God wanted for his covenant people of old under the days of Hosea. And that's not what God wants for us here at Ivanrest. And so we need to pray for the working of the Holy Spirit so that in word and deed, at home, at church, at school, at work, no matter where we are, no matter whom we are with, in all our ways, in all our conduct, what do we do? We seek to live in a way that acknowledges God. And what's more, in a way that shows the exclusivity of our faith, that we're not distracted by the other gods of our culture and our age, That God is not only number one in our life, but He is the only one in our life. One negative theme, a couple more to go. So we go on to number two. No gratitude to God. No gratitude to God. And you... And if you would turn to chapter 2, verse 8 for that. Chapter 2, verse 8. As you're looking up to verse 8, let me say that the second problem is a logical conclusion to the first problem, right? So if I don't truly acknowledge God, then no wonder when good things happen to me, I don't say, thank you, God. I say, uh, yay me. Like, you know... I earned it. I deserve it. I'm smarter. I work better. Whatever. I mean, if you don't acknowledge God, there's a certain logicalness, right? You look at the good things in your life and you don't attribute them to God. You attribute them to either fate or your own hard work. And we can see this same problem in uh, Hosea in Old Testament Israel too. We read in 2 verse 8, she... Israel being the spiritual wife of God, has not, oh, there it is again, another text for the first problem, has not acknowledged, right, that that big word, that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they use for Baal. 
You haven't forgotten, I just told you a few minutes ago that Israel went through like this 50-year period of prosperity and wealth. I didn't mention it was under King Jeroboam II, but life was good. And in all of that abundance, Israel doesn't attribute those blessings to God, and therefore they don't give Him the thanks and the gratitude that He deserves. That's their first sin. But even worse than that, they turn around and they use those good gifts that God has given them, they use it to honor another God named Baal. Think about that. That would be like you going to Jared's because, you know, when you really care, you go to Jared's, right? And, and you spend hard money on like this, this expensive ring for somebody you love, okay? And then you give them the ring and not only are they not grateful for it, that's got to hurt already, like, you know, they're going like big deal, okay, or whatever. That would hurt. That would sting. But you find out a little bit later, they turned around and they gave that ring that you gave, full of love and devotion, they gave that ring to somebody else. That's what it's like when we take glory, when we take praise, when we take thanksgiving, which deserves to be given to God, and then what do we do? We don't give it to Him. We either give it to ourselves or we give it to some other thing. Gratitude's a huge part of the Christian life. Some of us know that there's this document, this old document called the Heidelberg Catechism. Yeah. And in question and answer two of that Heidelberg Catechism, well, it comes after, after question and answer one. One you probably know. It has this wonderful description of comfort and the comfort that comes from belonging to Christ. But the second question naturally says, well, how do I get that comfort? I mean, you know, that sounds good to me. How do I get it? And then the catechism appropriately says three ways. One, you first have to know how great your sin and misery are. Secondly, how I'm set free from my sin and misery. Yay, right? But then the third thing is where this point comes in. How I am to thank God for such deliverance. The catechism again reminds us of a message we find throughout Scripture that gratitude, thankfulness, again, is a huge part of the Christian life. And we thank God especially and most intimately through our prayers. We thank and praise God through our worship. We thank and praise God through our obedient living. By being the people that he wants us to be, that's a, that's a powerful way of saying, thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done for me in Christ. Gratitude. Well, the first negative theme is no acknowledgement of God. The next logical problem is no gratitude to God. And a third negative problem is no proper worship of God. No proper worship of God. And if you would turn to chapter 10, verse 1 for that. Notice I didn't say no worship of God. There was worship in Israel. There was, in fact, too much worship going on. There just wasn't the right kind of worship. So in 10 verse 1, we have this metaphor that the people of Israel are like a, 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 a vine, right? 
And notice that Israel was a spreading vine, right? Because, well, 50 years of prosperity and wealth, right? And so this is a healthy vine. It's growing, getting bigger and bigger. In fact, the next line says, He, that is Israel, brought forth fruit for himself. And as his fruit increased, what did Israel do? He built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. I'm stressing the plural, altars and stones. Why? Because you need to be reminded that if you want to bring a present to God, if you want to bring a sacrifice to God, there's only one place you do it, right? There's only one altar. So these altars, plural, these sacred stones, plural, are not altars and sacred stones to Yahweh, the Lord, the one and only true God. These are altars and sacred stones to other gods. And again, there's a certain logicalness to this problem, right? I mean, if you were like 50 years of prosperity and wealth, you're like, yay, this is great. Uh, we better make sure that we don't do anything, you know, to ruin this, right? So, of course, we're going to worship God. We don't want to upset Him. But, you know, all these other gods out there, you know, we might as well cover our bets, you know, through a few altars and sacrifices for them to keep everybody happy because uh, we don't want to knock this good thing that's going on. So lots of worshiping going on, but not the proper worship. What kind of worship does God want? We turn to another verse, maybe one that you know the best from Hosea already, 6 verse 6. 6 verse 6. God says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and here comes that first theme again, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God's not against sacrifice. He's not against burnt offerings. He gave clear instructions to Israel about those things. But God says, I don't want your sacrifices when they're not accompanied by what? An acknowledgement of me, right? Your offerings can't be just some perfunctory act that you do to kind of keep me and maybe every other so-called God out there happy so that the good times can keep on rolling. No, no, no. I want, I want your worship of me to be like genuine, to be authentic. I want it to be sincere. In fact, in New Testament language, we would, we would say God wants our worship to be of him in spirit and in truth. And again, we ask ourselves, you know, is that the kind of worship that we bring to God this morning, every Sunday here at Ivan Rest? Is that the kind of worship we bring to God throughout our lives? Because, of course, we worship God not just on Sundays. We worship Him at all times and at all places. And is our worship of God, is our adoration of God, our veneration of God, is it, is it real, right? Is it authentic? I could ask, why are you here this morning? You don't want to be, but like, oh, I have to be here, right? Because otherwise, you know, my husband or wife will give me a hard time, or my mom and dad will give me a hard time, or I want to check out who's here and who's not here, you know, who's playing hooky and who's not, or I want to check out this uh, visiting professor from Calvin Seminary, you know. Uh, I've heard some things about Calvin Seminary, and, you know, I don't know, are they... Orthodox or not, I mean, there are lots of different motivations, right, for your being here this morning, and each one of us is asked 
Now, are we here for genuine reasons? Are we here because we acknowledge God and Him alone? And a powerful expression of that acknowledgement is the genuine, authentic worship that we bring to Him corporately here as a congregation and individually in our own personal lives. Well, if you're keeping track, I said three negative and one positive. We've already done the three negatives, so here comes the positive. So, so, so even though Israel does not acknowledge God as they ought to, even though Israel does not give God the gratitude and thanksgiving that he deserves, and even though Israel doesn't worship God properly, despite all of that, here comes the wonderful gospel. God says, my mercy is greater, Israel, than your sin. God's mercy is greater than Israel's sin. In fact, I want you to go home today making sure that you can say to yourself, God's mercy is greater than my sin. Now this mercy of God is found in a bunch of different places. We look at just one. We turn to chapter 11, chapter 11. A number of verses here, chapter 11, and the metaphor changes from that of husband and wife, modeling the husband-wife relationship between Hosea and Gomer. Here we have the relationship shifting to parent and child, and God, of course, being the parent and Israel being the child. And my Bible appropriately says God's love for Israel. Maybe I'd like to change it to saying God's mercy for Israel. And we read what? When Israel was a child, God says, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to Baals and they burnt incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim. I should tell you that Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, and Ephraim is the major tribe of the ten northern tribes. So God says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize, maybe we could translate it better, they did not acknowledge, it was I who healed them, God says. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. And notice in my Bible, there's a little gap between verse 4 and 5, because there's a little change here, right? Because what do you do with a rebellious child? You don't reward them. They deserve punishment, and that's what God says in verses 5, 6, and 7. They deserve, actually, to go back to Egypt, like under captivity before. And what about Assyria, the heavyweight in the east, they should rule over them because of their refusal to repent. But even though God says that's what they deserve, verses 6, 7, and 8, here comes God's mercy in verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like, or treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Those are two cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. 
God says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion, all my mercy is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. Why? Well, because I'm not like you, right? God says, I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. Right? I will not come in wrath against your cities. What we find here is a powerful image of our partner God in this covenant relationship, marriage relationship, in our Father God, right? Who loves us so much that what His mercy is greater than Israel's and our sin. And you and I know that to be the case. We know that because we haven't just heard now this morning Hosea tell us that, but brothers and sisters, as New Testament Christians, as those who live, right, on this side of like Christmas again and and Good Friday especially and Easter and Ascension Day, as those who live in this privileged place in the history of redemption, we haven't just heard that God's mercy is greater than all our sin. Why? We have experienced it. God's mercy in Christ is greater than all your sin. And I want to know whether you could say that. Or are you saying something else in your head like, oh man, doesn't he know that this service shouldn't be too long? Or are you saying, uh, I'm only, you know, five or six or 12 or 19 or 20-something. You know, I got, I got time later, you know, to, to think about these bigger questions of life and death. If the answer is just, uh, you know, I don't know what you're ranting and raving about all excited this morning, you know. Then, you know, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, on the outside, you might look pretty good, right? I mean, everyone might look at you, and from an external point of view, you know, you look like a fine person. But God, who knows our hearts, looks at you, and he sees, well, I say this reluctantly, he sees a prostitute. Somebody who's still foolishly sleeping around with other pretend gods, trying to find some other things to find meaning and purpose in life, finding their deepest comfort, right, in some other thing other than Him and Him alone. But if your answer isn't that, if your answer is, yes, Brother Wyma, I can say those words. Yes, you're saying to yourself, I seek to acknowledge God in all that I do. And yes, gratitude. I mean, I, I know I can do a better job, but gratitude, I'm, I'm profoundly and forever grateful to God for what He's done for me in Christ. 
And yes, I, I know I'm not always in the right mood, but I, I do genuinely love God and want to worship Him in spirit and truth. And most importantly of all, you say, yes, I know what you're talking about because I too know this Jesus. I too belong to Jesus, body and soul, and life and in death. Then today's a great day. Today's a wonderful day, regardless of all the junk happening out there because of COVID, regardless of, of yucky weather, regardless of whatever burdens you brought into this place and time. Because through, despite all of that, there is this gospel truth that gives joy and peace and comfort to your life. And that's this glorious gospel truth that God's mercy in Christ is greater than all your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that each person hearing this message will indeed be able to say and will believe that your mercy is greater than all their sin. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done. That your mercy can overcome whatever failures and disobedience and shortcomings that are part of our story. And so we pray that your spirit will take this gospel message and will implant it in our hearts in ways in which we experience your mercy. Ways in which your mercy allows us to find a sense of peace and joy in the midst of a broken and fallen world. And may we not only experience that peace and joy, but may we respond with, with joyful and exuberant and authentic worship. And may we respond with lives that acknowledge you as the one and only true God in everything we say, think, and do. In the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.